0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: The issues surrounding healthcare in the United States continue to take center stage for millions of Americans who rely on the Affordable Care Act. But a new book looks to bring forward ideas that could lead the United States to a much better health care system overall. The book is titled Prescription for the Future, the 12 Transformational Practices of Highly Effective Medical Organizations. The author is Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who is chair of medical ethics and health policy here at the University of Pennsylvania. He was also part of the team that developed the Affordable Care Act a few years ago. Great to see you, Zeke. Thanks for coming in. Nice to be back. Uh, When you look at this, and it was an interesting question I want to bring up, when you put this book together and now that it is coming out and, who are the more important people to reach with this? Is it the public to to you know to continue to have them to have a better understanding, or is it the healthcare system itself and the people that are all involved in this to try and get them to understand that you know some of the things that probably need to be changed?
0: Well, it's really both, uh, but I would say primarily it is people in the healthcare system uh, who need to understand. The system's changing. Everyone in the system knows that. Uh, They understand that the direction is to being paid for more value, and their real question is, what do I do? If I'm in the system, if I'm a doctor or I'm a healthcare executive or I run a hospital or I'm a nurse working in an organization, what do I do to move it along to the next level uh, of performance, higher quality, lower cost? There are also important lessons in that for the average person who's looking for a doctor. So the last chapter in the book is about how do I choose yeah. my doctor given all these changes in health care to make sure I actually have one that is high quality and I just don't go to the you know Philadelphia magazine or Boston <laughs> magazine or Washingtonian magazine and use that to, uh, uh, when they rank the 50 or 100 best doctors which, in the neighborhood. Which
1: is obviously something that uh, we've talked with you in the past is the fact that when you think about healthcare care in general – Most Americans think, okay, I get it for my work, and it's there, and I don't have to worry about it. Kind of hands off. Right. For people, uh, you know, a lot of them, the 20 or so million with the Affordable Care Act, you can't afford to be that way. You have to have more of a personal investment in trying to figure it out.
0: Right. Well, actually, in some ways, this book is for both of those because— You're right. If you work for a big company, or me, I work for the University of Pennsylvania, they pay the, you know, largely, I get the insurance through them. So that's the insurance part of it. But the actual how do I navigate the system part, how do I get my services, which doctor do I go to, which health system do I go to, that's still up to me largely. And I have to make those decisions. Uh, Some employers are helping with that, but by and large, it's still – my decision and this book is about what are the questions you can ask that would indicate that you have a pretty high-performing doctor or health system uh and so that's one set of questions yeah you know and if you're a doctor as i say or a hospital or uh some other uh, delivery component in the system question is you know what do i need to take myself to the
1: next level yeah but that's one of the things you bring up is the fact that the accountability you know, if for doctors for the healthcare system in general is something that needs to be addressed, it needs to be looked at as a change yep. in terms of philosophy as we move forward with healthcare. So, one of the 12 transformational practices we identify
0: in the book is uh, performance uh, metrics and performance management. Yeah, you definitely have to begin, if you're a doctor or a hospital, you have to begin understanding how well you perform and how well you perform relative to national benchmarks and to other people in your area and what you can do to improve. Uh, And for too long, you know, doctors have not uh, had any information on which to base that. I mean, I'll just give you, you know, when I was practicing oncology in Boston, it's like, Did I do a good job with those, my breast cancer patients or not? I had no information. Was I over treating them? Was I over testing or not? And I had no data. Well, one of the good things about the current system is we actually have data. Right. Uh, and uh, But yeah. is it fully understood? No, uh, well, that— <laughs> right, Which is another question. Two, two points. First of all, <laughs> excuse me, doctors are resistant to some of that data. Right. right. But the second is uh, a lot of people in the system don't actually understand it, don't have access to it. So that's the— sort of negative side of it. The positive side is the following. The government has been creating uh, more performance measurement, at least on the Medicare side of things. So you can go and look at the performance of hospitals. You can look at the performance of health plans under the Medicare Advantage Program, that is the managed care part of Medicare. And it turns out that people actually, when they have that data, have been migrating to the better performing Hmm. uh, uh, systems. So that measurement, albeit imperfect, et cetera, et cetera, with all the caveats we want to surround it with. Um,
1: does shift people to some degree. You talk in the book, and we're talking with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel of the University of Pennsylvania about his book, uh, Prescription for the Future. You talk about how there are elements out there, whether it be doctors in individual practice or medical organizations out there that are, are making these shifts right now, and they are trying to improve the 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 system in general on their own. And I guess to a degree, it's a little bit of you know the, the water dripping out of the faucet. It's not the, 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 the true rush that, yeah. that we probably need at this point. Right.
0: So one of the, the, the purposes behind the book was to say, all right, what's happening out there that's positive, and what could we learn from those yeah. positive experiences? Yeah. And it does turn out that there's a lot happening out there. It hasn't, as you point out, coalesced into a gush that everyone can see, and part of the point of the book is to say, look, you can be optimistic because we do have some insights as to what works and what doesn't work. Right. Not in every one of the 12 domains. I, a lot of the domains I point out are experimental, for lack of a better word. They're, people are trying them out. They're trying to validate them. Uh, but on things like chronic care management, open access scheduling, uh, yeah. performance measurement, standardization of practices, even in you know something a little less solid behavioral health, All of those, we do have important models. And I would say, if I had to say, what's the one most important thing out of the 12 that people have to do? I would say it's a a good chronic care coordination and management. In part because 84 cents of every dollar in healthcare is spent on patients with chronic illness. So it's where the money is. And the second is it's critical to... Uh, keeping these people healthier, but that
1: will also save us money because we'll use the system uh, much better. And, and there's been talk for, for many years now about trying to improve the healthcare system so that, you know, you, you obviously with chronic issues, you know, management I- I is part of the issue to a degree, but you want to be, as a medical physician, be able to manage it so that these people can, you know, be in much better condition over a long period of time than having you know, well oh, oh, six-month, exactly, exactly right. Absolutely.
0: And part of the whole point of chronic care management is lots of people have tried it. It's not like it's a new idea. No. But uh, they've tried it quite badly. Um, yeah. You know, the insurance company has uh, some nurse call up people. Well, no relationship Are you really going to listen to the advice of that nurse? Right. So one of the interesting things in the book is places that have succeeded at this, and some of the places have been doing this for 30 years with very sick patients and very successfully. You know, they all do the same. They identify their high-risk, high-cost patients. Yeah. Again, most of that is not some fancy algorithm produced by Silicon Valley. It's by ask the nurses and doctors. It's the patients they see, the patients who they worry about. Right. Then you have these chronic care managers rec- actually co-located, embedded in the practice. They work side-by-side side with the doctors. They're empowered to actually reach out to the patients. They don't wait for the patients to come to them. Right. They actually call them, and they call them very frequently. Hmm. I mean, one of the most uh, impressive places in Southern California called Caremore And for their diabetics, they actually run a toenail clipping service. (laughs) Now you ask, well, why why are you doing toenail clipping? Well, turns out diabetics have hard time feeling their toes because one of the side effects of diabetes is neuropathy. You can't actually feel very well in your extremities. Uh, If you go out and cut your toes, you might clip your skin. You might allow infection to develop you might not feel it if you are a diabetic next thing you know you got gangrene amputation that's very costly complication that's one reason the other reason is Over clipping toes, it's possible to talk to someone for in a kind of more intimate way and get a lot of useful information about the stressors in their life, how hard it is to follow the diet,
1: things that you can then tweak and actually make their care better. Well, uh, uh, the communication, as as you just said, it becomes very, very important, and it kind of goes also to something that you mentioned a moment ago, is the changing in in the, the, the scheduling model that that well. we have in, in the healthcare system and again it's the conversation that needs to happen Communication with the with the consumer, with the patient, to be able to improve that part of it, which I don't think there are many people out there listening to us right now that haven't had some sort of issue where scheduling is concerned.
0: Well, as I point out in in that chapter, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm exhibit number one in that problem of scheduling where yeah. I tried to schedule my doctor here at UPenn, and the first appointment I could get was seven weeks down the line. It's yeah. like, you know, this is not the modern era. Yeah. Um. But when I began the project, I went to I had no idea that scheduling was going to be really important. But it turns out scheduling is very important because the right scheduling system allows the health system to actually take care of today's problems. Today, it allows them to take care of it in the doctor's office as opposed to sending them to an emergency room where it will be more expensive to deal with. Mm-hmm. You won't have someone who really knows the patient. Um, and that is a big issue. And this open access – so when a do- uh, what the open access scheduling means is when a doctor starts the day – You know, between 20 and 50% of their appointments are empty for people who are going to walk in, uh, people who have a problem that day, or people who find themselves with the free time and need to, you know, just finish up some uh, routine care like their mammogram or their pap smear or whatever. Those things, that open access scheduling is very important to efficiency. And places that have transformed, almost all of them have open access scheduling. But
1: is it the doctors themselves that are resistant to kind of following that model? Because totally. you, you don't want to have open space in your day.
0: Doctors get nervous. Well, I'll have open space. I won't collect the revenue and I won't right. make enough money and then who's going to pay the office that blah blah blah. And I got to ba- And I gotta pay way. back
1: my loans for yeah. from medical school. It
0: doesn't work that way. It turns out that Uh, If you do open access scheduling, typically you get fewer no-shows, right? If I schedule now something for six weeks from now, it's like, eh, well, when six weeks rolls around, something else has come up and I don't show up, whereas if I, you know, Call today
1: and I can go in two hours. I'm not gonna miss that appointment. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton, eight four four nine four two seven eight six. A great opportunity to talk with Dr. Ezekiel Manuel about the healthcare system right now. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, if you can't get your phone, you're more than welcome to send me a comment via Twitter and we'll bring it up on the show. Ask Zeke a question right from Twitter. Either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney 21 One of the things we were talking about before we went on, and we both agree with this, is that part of the problem with healthcare today is is not related to anything around actual healthcare, but it's the people that are negotiating what is going to happen with healthcare <laughs> in Washington, DC. And obviously we're in that that transforming time. Whatever is going to happen in the next few months – and from what I understand, you've met with President Trump in a couple of occasions. So with Congress and the White House and all of this, this has become way too political in my opinion. Well, it's definitely become
0: too politicized. I mean I often say that if you put conservative and liberal health policy people together in a room, we could quote-unquote solve the issue – You know, a lot of them, 60 or 70 percent agreement about what needs to be done. Uh, But when it becomes political, uh, we're doing it for other reasons. We're doing it to satisfy, quote, unquote, our base and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Then you have a real problem. Um, And again, people who think it doesn't affect them should think again. If the insurance exchanges collapse because of uncertainty created by the uh, Republicans and and President Trump, if Medicare uh, rates don't uh, keep up, If Medicaid uh, gets cut back and more people become uninsured, that is going to affect all of us because there's something called cost shifting, which is if hospitals and doctors still have to provide free care to these people because they're sick and they can't collect money, they're going to increase their rates in other parts of the system. That is for people who have regular insurance. And so we're all going to end up seeing higher payments. That's not a formula for uh, everyone liking the system. Uninsured people, the rest of us having our premiums and and, uh, costs go up. So a lot of this really does affect the entire country. Uh,
1: The system that's in place right now, the Affordable Care Act, uh, a lot has obviously been made about things that work, things that don't work, things that need to be tweaked. Uh, You you were there on the front lines many years ago. and, And as this time has gone on, I heard an interview that you did, you know, if this was a corporation, things would be tweaked as they, as they go along. Now that you sit here right now, I I would think there are probably things that if you could dig in there, you would say, okay, if we did A, B, C, and D, we would be much better off as a whole right now. There's no doubt that
0: there's a, I wouldn't say a long list, but there's, you know, probably five pages of things that really need to be done. Most of them focusing on affordability. Uh, Once you've got a lot of people in the system, uh, people actually are content, it turns out, with uh, their options. Not everyone, we've got a country of 300 million people, not everyone is always going to be happy. But the big problem has become affordability. I've got high deductibles, I've got high co-pays. We need to get our handle around affordability. And there are a lot of things that can be done to try to bring the costs down. But we have paralysis. And I would say that you know the thing which I find so strange is President Trump did run on the issue of affordability in insurance, kept talking about how high expenses were, how high drug costs are. This Republican bill, zero, literally zero on affordability. And uh, if anything, it's going to make affordability worse. I'm like, how how does this match up with what the American public wants? And part of the problem is uh, is the political problem. We've had paralysis in Washington. So you haven't been able to make the changes to the Affordable Care Act you need to. Everyone— Like me, people who worked on it say, look, we've got to make changes. No company would put in place a policy and not revise it over seven years. That's an insane system. Uh, But, you know, we have uh, 535 people on the board of directors of the Affordable Care Act. They're called senators and congressmen, (laughs) and uh, they don't uh, uh, want to agree and uh, actually do something. Uh, And that's no way to run a, a system. We really cannot have paralysis for that long. And, you know, your, your listeners need to remember, when Hillary ran, she had a, a list of things that she wanted to do to uh, fix the affordable right. care. Right. No one, no responsible person says, uh, we shouldn't fix it. I mean, it just not, doesn't make sense. Most people say we should, you know, repair it. Even conservatives say we should repair it and right. not
1: throw it out. Right, right. We're joined in studio by Dr. Ezekiel Manuel of the University of Pennsylvania, author of the new book Prescription for the Future The 12 Transformational Practices of Highly Effective Medical Organizations. Your comments welcome at 844 Wharton, 844 942 One of the other things you talk about in the book are these kind of mega trends that you would like to see uh, occur Uh, please go into them for a second because there is one that i wanted to talk about afterwards uh, about specialties and 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 the changes in, in thinking about specialties in you know in the healthcare sector so yeah so one of the problems we have in
0: the united states and it's been long recognized is we have too many specialists compared to primary care doctors we need more primary care doctors and you know it's a it's a challenge to both. You know, one of the problems is with too many specialists. You end up with a lot of specialists doing a lot of primary care. So when I was an oncologist, I would be, you know, managing the diabetes for my patient or managing the congestive heart failure for my patient as we're treating them for their cancer. Right. That is a, not a good system. Right. Um, you should have primary care doctors doing most of the management and then bringing in the specialists. As consultants for patients who are really sick, or say have brittle diabetes, very hard to manage, or have uh, complex cardiac problems, but not run-of-the-mill, you know, uh, problems. And yeah. I think that's we've lost that. And. Again, places that have transformed have had this different relationship between primary care doctors and specialists, mostly using specialists as consultants uh, to confirm diagnoses, to confirm a course of treatment, not using them to
1: take over the management of sort of bread-and-butter health problems. Why do you think that that there has been this run towards specialists in the last, you know, 30 years or so? No,
0: it's been about the last 70 years. So a large part of it comes after the war uh, specialists get paid more. Yeah. Uh, so more people go into specialties, yeah. uh, in the VA system, uh, and out of the military specialists had higher rank, um, and specialists who had procedures like cardiologists with catheterization and stuff got paid for those procedures. And so they could make a lot more money. So it really incentivized people to go into specialties, um, we have to reverse that. I mean, in England, one of the solutions they have is that primary care doctors are the highest-paid doctors, and you know, on average, in their system, right. and, and very well paid. You know, and so it becomes a. a, a I mean, the specialist has prestige of the specialty, right. but the primary care doctor needs something else to keep them in it and keep them attractive.
1: But focusing on having more primary care physicians, what does that do to the industry? And and I think it, more so. You know the education process. I mean, uh, of preparing doctors to be primary care physicians in comparison to being a specialist. What does that
0: do to the industry? That is a really good question. So, I uh, two weeks ago I was uh, spent time writing an essay about the change, the changes we'd need in American medical education, and the fact is that. Uh, one of the big changes we need is to move a lot of the training out of hospital so if you go to medical school uh, roughly the first two years or year and a half is you know book learning sure. about the anatomy and biology uh, but the last uh, two two and a half years is about um, training on your clinical side so Clinical rotations, and typically they're in the hospital. Well, it turns out that you know hospital care has really gone down in this country, and outpatient care has gone up. And yet we train our doctors in the hospital as if that's the uh, where they're going to see most of their patients. But that's just not true. So one of the big changes we need is to train our doctors differently, train them more in the outpatient setting and less in the hospital. And you know that is a hard thing to do. I don't want to minimize it, but it is something. I mean, we have here at the it's university, hard
1: because of the hospitals themselves.
0: No, it's hard because uh, how do you supervise them? How do you standardize right. the training right. when they're all in you know 120 different physician practices? How do you incentivize those physicians to make time to to actually teach students? Um, and <coughs> excuse me, it turns out that that's something we really need to be doing, but we're not actually. Uh, doing in the system very well.
1: We're talking with Dr. Ezekiel Manuel of the University of Pennsylvania. He's chair of medical ethics and health policy here at the school. 844 Wharton is the number to give us a call. 844 942 7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio111 or my Twitter account, which is at danloney21. Moving forward, are we getting anywhere closer to having a, a system and probably down the road where? We can have it where it's relatively simple for people to be able to say, okay, I basically a la carte, you know, I would like to have X, Y, Z in my healthcare. I know because I've had a condition, I know I need this, but I don't need other elements You don't of want it. that. Okay. And the reason
0: we don't want that is you don't know what's going to happen to right. you. Right, right. Uh, and so you say, for this year, I want X, Y, and Z, and say, uh, uh, you start that in January, but it turns out in March you get... Either hurt, or you have an accident, or you get pregnant, or lots of things can happen. Right. So the a la carte, I think, is a very bad idea. Okay, uh, what is in the base insurance package? We can discuss, um, but I think the idea that I don't need whatever I want to put on that list is a mistake. And here's one that we know, for example, probably a lot of people say I don't need mental health. Turns out that mental health problems are Very, very common, much more common in the system, badly managed. Uh, If you go to outpatient, uh, certainly of chronic uh, people with chronic illness, about 30% have depression or overlying anxiety. They actually, it turns out, raise substantially the amount we spend on the system. So again, one of the things the best organizations are doing are really addressing those mental and behavioral health problems up front and not sweeping them under the rug, which is what we've done for literally the last 100 years. And so- you don't want people saying, well, I don't want mental health because they might need that mental health, especially if they get diagnosed with a chronic condition. And, right? You know, if it, look, if you get diagnosed with cancer. Cancer's one problem, but, you know, the depression that comes along with that diagnosis uh, is another problem that needs to be addressed.
1: We've got about a minute left, but obviously there's the issue surrounding the, the, the issues <sighs> around opioids right now and, and being, able, being able to get a system in place that better manages that problem. And, and I'm guessing you've got a few thoughts on that as well.
0: Yeah, this is one, again, where we've more or less ignored it. We've known since Richard Nixon was president that we need – good substance abuse treatment uh, in the system, that it's the cost-effective way to deal with opioid abuse. We also know that we really have to stop the sort of pill mills um, and the doctors who have abused the system and the drug companies, frankly, that have abused the system. Uh, And until we get serious about getting uh, the doctors and drug companies that have abused the system uh, and in place these uh, uh, opioid treatment centers uh, for a lot of people and not just I mean, right now they're all uh, way oversubscribed. Uh, it's going to be hard to get our arms around this. I mean, it, it's seriously addictive stuff. Yeah. And it's not something like it's just willpower. No, most of us, ninety nine point nine percent of us, do not have that kind of willpower.
1: Well, and here in the city of Philadelphia, the mayor recently, recently just you know says I'm going to uh, put another one point four million dollars to you know help uh, the problem of opioid addiction. One point four million dollars, right? Exactly. It's literally taking five dollar bill out right, of your right, out of your pocket right, right now. Right. Serious well, problem. Great to see you again. All right. Thank you. Thank you. The book is titled Prescription for the Future: The Twelve Transformational Practices of Highly Effective Medical Organizations. The book is out at Dr. Ezekiel Manuel, the University of Pennsylvania, the author of it.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.